Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. Remember to go check out the website dormroomhistory.com slash the history of China. Now on that website, you know well by now, we'll have maps, we'll have links, and of course, the donate button. But also, be sure to rate the show five stars and give it a follow. And of course, thank you, Stephen, for the donation since last episode. The microphone fund is, well, I guess it's going now. Last time, we got on a really, really exciting tangent. Probably my favorite yet. I mean, just for personal reasons. And today, hopefully, if all goes to plan, we won't have a classic Follow the Emperor episode. I mean, we will follow the Emperor at times, but even though Emperor An will start pouring acetone and kerosene all over the proverbial Eastern Han, there's a lot of crazy cool stuff still happening around him. Emperor He is gone, and Emperor An, who as mentioned last week, was famous for being totally cool with corruption, is here. So, without further ado, The History of China, Episode 56, Eunuchs and Corruption. Two episodes back or so, I promised I would come back to an exceedingly important person. That person being the eunuch Tsai Lun. Tsai, in around 105, as we know, invented the first real modern paper and paper-making process, or so it's alleged. Using tree bark and hemp, he ushered in the first generation of a product that still dominates the globe today. Obviously, products similar to paper had existed well before, whether that be stone carvings, shell carvings, parchment of some sort, bamboo strips, you name it. People were writing things down on stuff before this. But this invention, in what most people assert, and again, there's a lot of debate in the paper community, I'm not even kidding, but this invention led to the first large-scale production system of a paper-like product. Tsai Lun, though, did a lot and is actually going to play a pretty large role here with Emperor An. And the reason I haven't done much with him yet is because his career is long, but it's inconsistent. He has one massive cool thing, then goes about life for a few years, nothing much happens, then boom, another cool thing. And then quiet again, repeat, and repeat that cycle. Keeping him on board chronologically with this story thread would have seen him be buried under the other things we were discussing, and we were discussing quite a lot. So, to set the scene for Emperor An, and for when these two cross paths, let's first understand Tsai Lun, L-U-N. Tsai was born in the Guiyang region of the Eastern Han, which is in modern-day Hunan. He was born presumably poor, as the region was filled with Han immigrants seeking a life in rice cultivation, and nothing is known about his family. If they were someone, we would have known they're not. However, like so many figures of his day, whether they're rich or poor, no one actually knows when Cylon was born. 
It is recorded as late as the year 62 and as early as year 50. The History of China show will not make an official stance on his birthday. There is simply too large of a range. But the point is, how does a poor kid from an extremely far from the capital region end up at the capital is a mystery to us even to this day. In ancient China, as with most civilizations, being far from the capital usually meant you ended up later in life still far from the capital. Obviously, nothing is for sure with his early career, but I will share a leading theory based on facts known, but also stipulation, yes. And I want to share it not just for narrative consistency or to fill in some holes, but also because it shines a light on how life in the Eastern Han can work for an average person, something I know I have neglected. I apologize. So we know Tsai Lun, according to the Ho Han Shu, is indeed employed during the later reign of Emperor Ming in and around the year 74. That's a point we know. So how in the world did this poor person from a region far from the capital with rice cultivation, with no real prospects at birth, end up in the imperial court? Kiyofusu Narita, and pardon me, I again don't speak Japanese, was the director of the paper museum in Tokyo. Yes, I'm serious. That's also a thing. Surmised that, quote, through the assistance of some who were in charge of the iron foundry, he, Tsai Lun, found opportunity to go to the capital city, end quote. This point is actually furthered by stipulation mixed with facts, because later in Tsai Lun's career, he would hold positions based around metalworks, especially around ceremonial swords. And so that's evidence that he must have, and he had to have, learn the skills necessary for that later appointment, well, he would have had to learn those earlier in life, likely from the same iron foundry in the region. And I guess what you can take from this is that some things don't change. You take opportunities, you network, you make connections, and you elevate your career. Ah, though we all know well by now that ancient history, for its own part, is not as factual at times, and indeed often, and in this case, slides into the tabloid and gossipy. According to some of the rumors and folk tales in the annals and oral histories, though, Tsai Lun was a trickster and a huckster. Thus, obviously, that's how he went from small town to imperial court. It's that simple. He's a manipulative trickster. Which, sure, he maybe he was a trickster, and we know he was savvy, Though I doubt that is exactly the entire reason how this poor kid from a small town ends up inventing paper. There's a lot more than just being a trickster. Regardless, by the end of 75, the year Emperor Ming dies, Tsai is known to be a eunuch. Unclear when that, you know, was uh, made official, but alas. Now, I will again use Tsai Lun to further paint a picture of life of different positions in the Han Dynasty. And this one's going to be about palace life. Eunuchs held a special spot in imperial life. Yes, another eunuch soon after this point would set a precedent of eunuchs being crucial advisors 
But for most of the Han, eunuchs held roles that only eunuchs could. For example, and after a bit of thinking hardly surprising, is the fact that only eunuchs could watch over the imperial harem. I'm going to let you figure out the reason behind that. Now, eunuchs were also exclusive watchers over of the imperial household. Tsai's career gets going by, in his own case, by essentially being a chamberlain for the imperial family. He's running messages from the quote-unquote privy council, or the court, back to the emperor, and then from the emperor back. Yes, eunuchs, though, weren't able to do certain things, or be certain things, no matter how hard they tried. So they were given these positions of immense trust because they can't do certain things or act upon certain things, if you know what I mean. And to their credit, these were extremely respectable positions to hold. Win-win, though I don't know if that's an investment I would make for my own career prospects. I mean, you're guaranteed positions of immense trust and prestige. Yes, there's a hard ceiling on what you can do, but because that hard ceiling exists you're rarely going to get caught up in some of the more higher-stakes stuff. But here's where the story begins to wrap itself up together. Because Tsai Lun found himself as the key interrogator of Concert Song during Lady Do's power grab in 82. Remember, Consort Song asked for herbs when she was sick, Lady Do accuses her of witchcraft, and Tsai is the one who gets the false confession out of her, or at least enough to render her guilty enough. And that is how we get Emperor He made as the heir. That whole process. He invented paper, and in some weird way, he's a kingmaker. Though the latter point, I know, is exaggerated. Though he served Emperor He well, even becoming the highest paid eunuch in the history of China to that date, allegedly. Though... When the coup against the Doe's ended up happening, he kept his mouth shut. Because while he was serving Emperor He well, he was playing both sides of the ball. So alas, it seems the trickster accusation isn't the most inaccurate. He was loyal to Emperor He, but he was also helping out with the Doe's when it benefited him. Fast forward to 106, and the infant Emperor Shang is dead, and Emperor An aged about 13, as we know, is made emperor. And this is where the story really gets wrapped up. 13, as we know, though, is way too young to rule. And they knew that back then, too. So Empress Dowager Deng controlled things as regent, with the eunuchs Tsai and Zheng holding positions of immense influence in the court of the Empress Dowager. So they pretty much have the ear of the person running the empire. And with that, we are all caught up to the main thread. So before we continue jumping into it, I hope in some level we were able to glean a little more about the inner workings of the Han here while also catching up to the year 106. From 106 to 115, Tsai maintained his influence with the Empress Dowager. But young Emperor An was falling under the influence of other eunuchs. And in 115, Emperor An had a son with a consort, but shortly after, that consort was poisoned by another consort. She died, by the way. 
the consort who poisoned and killed the mother of his first son, literally later that year is made empress to Emperor An. And the dichotomy of Tsai backing Empress Dowager Deng, while others back the long-term play of the soon-to-be full emperor, some officials saw this as a chance to better themselves, and conflict just became inevitable. By 119, this was so obvious that even the Empress Dowager realized people were scheming to eliminate her and her posse, including Tsai, when Emperor An took over for good. And to make matters more interesting, the crowd that was backing Emperor He and getting themselves wrapped up in his blanket, well, they really weren't all that great. With these friends, per se, Emperor An began to quickly lose interest in the important parts of, well, I don't know, learning how to rule the largest empire on Earth, and instead, in a tale that's not confined to China, was only interested in the vices that such a position held. Women, drink, you name it. Empress Dowager is even alleged to have considered trying to swap emperors yet again, realizing what was going on, well, for her own safety and for potentially the health of the dynasty if Emperor An continued on this track. But we know that never ends up happening. And in 121, Emperor An, the womanizing, spoiled partier, became emperor after the Empress Dowager died. Here we go. Par for the course now with the Empress power issue that we have seen so far, Empress Yanji, so that's her name, and she's the one that killed the mother of well, the crown prince, and her brothers quickly take over the court. That's how power is now distributed in the Han Dynasty. Moreover, Emperor An remembered Tai's part in the death of his grandmother, Consort Song, and Emperor An ordered that Tai report to the Ministry of Justice to answer for a slew of charges, and he was probably going to be sentenced to death. Completely ashamed that the Emperor would send him to his death in such a remarkably dishonorable way, Tsai took a bath, dressed in his finest clothes, drank poison, and killed himself. Our threads are now complete. Though Emperor An is still here, and either because he was too naive or distracted to change them, he kept policies and personnel in place to a large part. But by the end of the year, 121, his posse wanted their investment to pay off. They backed him, they spent the time, they gave a lot to him, and they got the Dung clan booted, with many of those people in that clan killing themselves. And eventually, maybe Emperor An had a conscience, I don't know, but he eventually loosened the orders against the Dung clan, but by the time he did, and the time he actually acted on any semblance of policy the Dung clan was pretty much done. The damage was done, and they were more or less finished and would never rise to the heights they had just been at. And in a sign of things to come, Emperor An ignored any and all criticism of these new court people that he has brought in. The people that aren't that great, he doesn't really care. And he failed to punish them for abject corruption. 
This is where he begins to get that reputation. He often listened to these corrupted people's suggestions. They were his friends after all, or something, who knows. And he would then in turn ignore the advice of his key and, more importantly, qualified officials. So he's allowing corruption, listening to the corrupted people's ideas, and ignoring the statements and ideas and vision of those who, well, you should be listening to. One of the more outspoken people against Emperor An, I mean, at least that disagreed with his policy, was the commander of the armed forces, who, of course, is eventually removed from his post in 124 and, par for the course at the time, committed suicide in protest. Ah, great. You can tell that this is not going to be a very good reign. But back in 121, the same year that these bad friends and bad people are taking over positions in the court and the Empress's family is getting involved more and more, the Chiang did what the Chiang do. And they, yes, they rebelled. And this time, no real decisive pacification would come from this. I told you, it was a wound that was festering and it is going to continue to do so. Oh, and on the cherry on top, now the Xianbei started rebelling. Okay, so you have corruption, nonsensical policy, terrible advisors, and rebellions? What could make this worse? I don't know. A succession issue could, I guess. And knowing Emperor An, of course, there was just that. A succession issue. In a power play several court officials and eunuchs got together to try and better their own position within the palace. They schemed and acted out a plan to falsely level accusation against the crown prince, the son of the now dead consort, crown prince Bao. They were going to level these false accusations against his wet nurse as well as a chef. Plan worked, and the wet nurse and co. get executed. But then, and somehow only then, do the conspirators put it together that when the crown prince, oh, I don't know, assumes the power of emperor one day, he's going to be pretty pissed off that you killed his favorite people. I mean, servants or whatever. Yeah, you got him killed. He's not going to be happy in your little plan here. Well, I hope you enjoyed it because now you're about to die. Some real big brain energy out here. Just because they were corrupt does not mean they were smart though they found their solution. And their solution was kind of simple. The Empress, Empress Yan, did not like the Crown Prince. And it checks out because that's not her son. He was of a consort that she killed. So she has some other axes to grind here. So with her on board, the conspirators then accused Crown Prince Bao and his entourage of a bunch of made-up crimes. And to note, Crown Prince Bao is all of like 10 years old. Maybe a little older. You would think that this accusation against the Crown Prince would warrant extensive investigation. I mean, you are leveling these at the Emperor's chosen successor. But Emperor An really could not be bothered to do a good job at anything, even investigating his Crown Prince, and simply ate these accusations hook, line, and sinker. 
and demoted Crown Prince Bao in 124. Quick tangent here, and I haven't gotten to this yet. I've talked about these seeds of destruction, and yes, there's several of them here. But the issue with the Empress Dowager, Empress Power issue, is really exacerbated in, the, in these last two reigns. Emperor An was not the son of the Empress. He wasn't. And neither was Emperor He. So as Empresses are taking over the power, they're then forcing out the Empress Dowager, but now the cycle's repeating. So there's no consistency. Theoretically, if the current Empress, Empress Yan, gets her own son in, she'll be fine, she'll be stable, until he finds an Empress. And you see how this goes, right? The new Empress will force her out, get rid of all her power, and add her people in, and we're going to keep erasing clans from the face of the earth and creating a lot of political instability. So currently, Crown Prince Bao is demoted, and the year is 124. The plan of these conspirators and the Empress is, well, it's working. And it more or less did perfectly. Though only one thing could mess this up, and that's if, oh, I don't know. Like in the next year, while on a trip to Wancheng, modern-day Henan, Emperor An gets sick and dies. In 125, while on a trip to Wancheng, in modern-day Henan, Emperor An gets sick and dies. Empress Yan had to act fast, and she did not want to allow his son, Prince Bao, to be emperor. I mean, she just made this move. They've put a lot of eggs in one basket. So she gets Emperor An's little cousin proclaimed emperor. The cousin who is swapped in is recorded as being in the histories as, quote, much younger, end quote. And we forget that Prince Bao is around 10. So if you're much younger than that, you have just installed probably a toddler. And just like what happened to Emperor An, in his story of succession, a child is made emperor. And if you've listened to this show from the beginning, you know that child emperors create a lot of problems. They often turn out pretty bad. Most regions are self-serving. But lo and behold, a child is now emperor. But the similarities to Emperor An's succession don't end there. Because, just like in the case we saw last episode, the new infant emperor here, the one that replaces Crown Prince Bao for succession, dies that year. Nothing malicious, no murder, it's just the ancient world. And I can believe that. That I can believe. Even if someone else wrote the history to make themselves look better, little kids die a lot back then. And this is where the walls start to fall apart for Empress Yan. And her whole clan, really. I mean, how many times are we going to keep looking at this? Empresses are acting out. Officials are acting out. Their whole clan gets thrown into a, a crazy accelerator into their own personal and professional lives. They get more money, more power. But then what? It's a high-stakes game. One piece falls, you all end up dead. And backers of Prince Bao saw the time to strike. He was, after all, the only son of the emperor that just now passed. And oh, strike they would. But this is an awkward place. 
If I kept going, this episode would be 50 minutes, and I know some of you would love that, but I think I'm going to stop here, because what happens next will need a full deep dive. Potentially a shorter episode, I know. It's a weird place, but trust me, we'll get to it next time. So be sure to check out the website. Really, I know it doesn't seem like a lot, and I always say that, but rating the show, checking out the website, and interacting with me really helps. Gives me suggestions on different directions I can take the show because I am receptive of criticism, whether I say certain things in episodes that people didn't like or whether there are things you wish I elaborated upon more. The show is all of our show. I mean, I'm the one speaking, but at the end of the day, I do this for you guys. So message on the website. Tweet at me, though I won't respond, and I'm now off Instagram for the foreseeable future, but email me. Reach out to me. Tell me what you like, what you don't like, where you, what you want to see more of, what you don't. And of course, if you do so feel inclined, donate. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. And I'll see you all next time on the history of China. <laughs>